On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time Imon Irti Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashi Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. Vientalam again Omgrev, Orkorn Rachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you told me 10 years ago that the cleverest and most cunning criminal mastermind in the history of the state was A, going to find himself targeted by a gangland opponent for murder, that he was going to be forced to flee the country with a one million euro bounty on its head, that he was then going to become the subject of a Europe-wide or international police manhunt, that he is now sitting in a cell awaiting to be extradited to Ireland to face gangland and murder charges, I would have said, you are mad. This is the story of a modern-day criminal godfather, Jerry the Monk Hutch. Four months after a European arrest warrant was issued for Jerry Hutch, also known as the Monk, in connection with the Regency Hotel attack, Spanish police swooped on him and took him into custody. He had been under surveillance for a time and around 10 undercover police surrounded him last night in a bar in the centre of Fuengarola, which is around half an hour from Malaga in Spain. From Dublin's north inner city, Jerry Hutch is a veteran criminal who has been on the run since a European arrest warrant was issued in April. His extradition is being sought by Gardaí investigating the murder of Kinnahan gang member David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in February 2016. Irish independent journalist Paul Williams, author of The Monk, The Life and Crimes of Ireland's Most Enigmatic Gang Boss, gives us an insight into the criminal career of Dubliner Jerry Hutch. I suppose, Denise, what we're looking at here is the spectacular downfall of a man who was not so much untouchable as perhaps uncatchable. I'm Denise Callanan and you're listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. As a kid, like um, I mean, my first conviction was for stealing a red bottle of lemonade. I got a fine and then I was involved in another crime as a kid, stealing and breaking into shops. There was, there was nothing around, I mean, forced up, best dressed. I had no choice. You had to get into crime to feed yourself, and mind dress yourself. That was Paul Reynolds interviewing Jerry Hutch back in 2008 on RTE's Primetime, one of a few clips from them we'll hear today. Paul, who is Jerry Hutch, known as the monk, and what exactly makes him a different criminal? That's a very, very complex and loaded question, Denise, because having dealt with criminals for well over 30 years and and, and understanding them, I have to say that he is probably the most complex uh, concoction of attributes and characteristics I've ever come across. He really was the criminal 
and is the criminal who stood out from the rest of the underworld rabble. That's the best way to describe it. Because he was, he, the kind of words I would use for him, he's pensive, he's inscrutable, he's deep, he is the quintessential strong, silent type. Um, he has always been, from the time he was a young, from a teenager, and he learned a few mistakes when he got nicked and put in prison, very disciplined, very focused, very controlled. Um, always kept his head down, stayed out of the limelight, didn't, knew he was a major, was very confident in his position as a major gangland figure at a very early age, but didn't exploit that to bully and push, bully other people and push them around. He was the kind of guy who, if he reached an obstacle in his career or his lifetime, like with another criminal, and an obstacle I mean as potential for battle or war or gangland feuds, he was attached and was involved in some of the first gangland hits ever in this country. But, his primarily his strategic approach would be if there's an obstacle along the road he will go around it and avoid uh, confrontation and hardship and hassle if he can at all in any way um, really that was what I think put him and cast him as different from the rest of them. And the older criminals when he was coming up around 16 when he was getting involved in very serious armed robberies using machine guns and grenades and stuff they saw the potential, like Eamon Kelly, who's now dead, was his was his mentor, a major gangland figure in the 70s and 60s. He literally took Hutch and put under his wing. He said, this kid's got a talent. That is, I think, what makes him different to everybody else. And he did have a colourful career in criminality and he served time in his early years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, he comes from what you would call a criminogenic environment in the inner city where there's a culture of deprivation and always was. Um, and going back generation, generations, going back to the time when the, 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 the the people who owned the big houses moved out and they turned into tenements after the, the famine. So he, when he talks about his first conviction being for robbing lemonade, most of them were for robbing things, petty things like that. And he was only eight years of age and his mum really did look after him and loved him and she, she went to court with him. Uh, so he had this sort of quite inauspicious start to his criminal career. But as I said, by, he was eight at the time when he was conv- first conviction. By the time he was 16, he was been associated with some of the very major armed robberies where they were using machine guns as I say and grenades extraordinary hardware um, and he again he was quite precocious he was a guy who could hold himself and emerged as the natural leader of the kids around him um, from a very very early age I started with 25 plus 9 10 35 done a lot of business and property it was a good time and that's where I made my money. If people say armed robberies, so be it. I mean, I was questioned about these armed robberies you're talking about, so we let them decide, the people. But the figures don't add up. Sometimes figures don't add up. And it's been debated, and he has, you know, the wily character he is, he's denied it, and he's, you know, wandered around the question. But Paul, how much money do you think he, he actually made in that career of armed robbery? That's a, a great question. I, I would say, like in the book I wrote last year about him, and the monk, I converted it over. If you take the accumulative sums that he's robbed in three of the biggest heists that he did, once the first one was 1987, the last one was 1995, and then between there was one in Waterford in the early 90s. Between those three big, big robberies that he was, the three biggest robberies, the equivalent, he stole the equivalent of 14 million euros in today's money. Uh, he was always very frugal, very clever and intelligent with his money. He began, for example, in his early days, uh, and this is another dimension to him, he was a very much unusual in the criminal fraternity. He was a very, very responsible and dedicated a father, and so was his wife, Patricia Fowler. She was a very good mother. 
she, she gave birth to their first child when he was 18. By that time, he had enough money saved in the bank. Now, in another world, in another time before cab, you could save your, your money from your armed robberies, believe it or not. You could rob the bank and then lodge the money in your bank account. I know how ridiculous and counterintuitive that sounds. But when he was 18, he had enough money saved up that he could buy a house for cash on Buckingham Street for his wife and new child. I've never seen another criminal doing that. And then he invested his money again with Eamon Kelly and, and Matt Kelly, his brother. They advised him and uh, how to, he could invest his money. Jim Mansfield, who's who's now dead, Jim Mansfield Sr. Those people all popped up in his chart and in his history because these guys guided him. And he started buying property when he was about 19. Uh, and he has built a huge property portfolio. But here, he had a lot of property uh, abroad. Also, he was dabbling in the background and investing in the background from a distance in the drug trade. Probably through his, his nephew, Gary. But that was, he gave him money and hoped to get profit back. He didn't touch the stuff himself. So he is a very wealthy man. Because of my ignorance to the tax laws, that's why I paid him that. I built up a portfolio of property and I had bank accounts and this is it. I didn't pay me tax. They taxed you on the proceeds of crime. Didn't That's what the Criminal Assets Bureau do. The Criminal Assets Bureau tax people. I mean, well, when you say the proceeds of crime, I, it's tax. Not paying your tax is a crime. So he was a clever man with his money and that he had made investments. But I suppose the Criminal Assets Bureau did catch up with him, Paul. They did. And let's just contextualise it. Our colleague Veronica Gearn, who was murdered, we know, in 1996, lest we forget. But he did an interview with Veronica. She got on very well with him. He had been blamed. Uh, the, the Other mobsters like Gilligan and Trainer, John Trainer, these people, tried to get the blame put on Gerard Hutch for shooting Veronica when she was shot first in the leg in, in early 1995. She very unambiguously stated in the Sunday Independent following our interview with him. I know he was involved in the Brinks Allied robbery, which had just taken place a year earlier, and that was the big, big one. It was over £3 million of a robbery. But I also know that he was not involved in my shooting. When Veronica was murdered, he did a very brave and honourable thing. He stood in a queue of people outside the, the headquarters of Independent News and Media, our previous address on Middle Abbey Street, and he queued with the ordinary citizens of Dublin and Ireland to, to sign a book of condolences, even though there was, the cops were following him. Uh, he was in a bit of bother at the time with them. But he was sending an unambiguous word to the rest of the criminal fraternity that this was a step too far. He didn't agree with this. Then the irony of ironies is that the person whose murder he didn't agree with, the person who he actually, the journalist he did get on best with. As a result of her murder, her legacy was the Criminal Asset Bureau. As a, when the Criminal Asset Bureau was set up, it was initially going to target straight away Gilligan. But in terms of their list of targets, they used the uh, uh, Greek numerals, and it was Operation Alpha was the very first operation. And Operation Alpha was the investigation of the monk and his associates. Over the next number of years, they took over £40 million from Hutch and his, and his associates, and and Hutch himself was forced to pay them £1.2 million in 2000. And as a result of that, we then could name him in the media and photograph him. And it was all, ironically, uh, on the back of Veronica's murder. Gardaí say they're concerned about the possibility of retaliation after the murder of gangland criminal Gary Hutch. The 34-year-old was shot dead on the Costa del Sol in Spain yesterday. Gardaí say he knew his life was in danger. Two gangs, 18 people killed, families torn apart. How exactly did the <clears> hutch Keenan feud begin and what role did Jerry Hutch play in it, Paul? But that ultimately, well, first of all, Jerry Hutch plays a central role in all of this. Uh, September 2015, Gary Hutch was shot dead. Gary was his nephew. 
let's put it in context for your listeners uh, as 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 tightly and comprehensively as I can. Gary Hutch was an integral member of the Kinahan cartel. In fact, the Kinahan cartel wasn't known as the Kinahan cartel to us, the public, uh, until after this feud broke out because they were one indistinguishable huge gang. Inevitably, what happens in the dynamics of, of the psychology of criminal gangs is that they fall out. Greed, it's all based on money and power and greed. It's all about greed. Gary Hutch fell out with Daniel Kinahan, his boss. In 2014, he got another man from Dublin to come over and to try and assassinate Daniel Kinahan. Daniel Kinahan found out very quickly that Gary Hutch was behind it. He was held hostage, literally held hostage. Daniel Kinahan and his father, Christy Kinahan, would not negotiate with anybody else. Now, normally, you would just he would have been taken out and shot dead, never seen again or heard of. But Gary Hutch was considered to be part of gangland royalty. Gerard Hutch, as we all know, is a in, to use the mafia term, as a man of respect. He was a senior, heavy-duty godfather. You didn't mess with him. He knew Kinahan Sr. all his life. They were all, as I say, one immiscible substance at the time. He met, at the insistence of Daniel Kinahan and Christy Kinahan, he met in near in Malaga Airport with Daniel Kinahan and they worked out this so-called peace deal. Part of the peace deal was that a member of Hutch's entourage, uh, uh, Gary Hutch's entourage, who was used to do the attempted shooting in in Marbella, had to present himself in Drumcondra in around August 2014 as part of this deal to be shot in the legs personally by Daniel Kinahan, which I revealed all of this in my book last year. Kinahan came home, shot your man in the legs. Derek Coakley Hutch, who was subsequently one of the members of the Hutch family murdered, he brought his, his, his this person to the hospital where he was in the matter hospital he was cared for. As, as, well, as, as well as that money, 200,000 was paid over and there were other aspects to it. That was all worked out. Now, Jared Hutch is a man who believes his word is his bond, literally. And he's probably the last of, of a breed of criminals who actually had any kind of honour in him at all. All of this was put in abeyance. Garrett, Gary Hutch kept his head down, came back, was lured back to Spain in, in the summer of 2015 and then ultimately they reneged and they murdered him. On the same day, by the way, that they murdered him, another hit team were sent to a school in Glasnevin to murder Gary Hutch's father, Patsy Hutch, who was brother of Jerry Hutch, to get rid of him on the same day. Then it gets really, really heavy because on New Year's Eve 2015, two men are sent from Dublin to murder Jared Hutch. Jared Hutch spots them, recognises them, gets out his, his feral self-preservation, instinct for self-preservation, kicked in. He left this pub he was in in, in Porto del Carmen and disappeared. He came back to Dublin in January and that's when the, the, the incredible and outrageous act of narco-terrorism we call the Regency Hotel attack was then mooted. And from then on, he planned it over a month of January. And on the 5th of February, we saw the culmination of that planning when five men, two of them posing as a so-called couple, this one of them was a guy called Flatcap, has since died, an IRA man from the north, and then three members of the gang dressed as ERU men, armed with AK-47s, stormed the Regency Hotel with the intention of doing a, the equivalent of a, a, a Valentine's Day massacre, uh, wipe out Kinnahan and all his people. Didn't work out, a spectacular miscalculation. Kinahan and his top lieutenants got away. They spotted David Byrne, the only member of the gang they could identify, and they murdered him. And that's where we saw sparking off this unprecedented cycle of violence. The guy leaned over the receptionist's desk and pointed the gun at me, so I was looking down the barrel of his gun and I was shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot. 
he said something to me that I can't quite remember it was just maybe two words and then he left again um, the guy who was shot right beside me at that time that, that is the man who's now died appealing for anybody who was in the vicinity of the Regency Hotel at the time to give us as much information as possible Paul the Regency Hotel attack was really only the start of it what happened next? What happened next was uh, that the revenge was ex- very, very quick. Uh, Daniel Kinahan and his associates, David Burns' associates as well, and his family, crime family, uh, very quickly regrouped and waged absolute war on the Hutch family and the people of the inner city. It was implacable. It was merciless. And in all the years I've been covering organised crime in this country, it was perhaps the bloodiest and nastiest uh, campaign I've ever seen. Very quickly on Monday evening, uh, that was that occurred on Friday, and by Monday evening, um, Kinahan's people murdered uh, Eddie Hutch, who was Jared's uh, mentor and best friend in life. Uh, he brought him into the business of armed robbery. He taught him how to do armed robberies, uh, Eddie did, because Eddie was a villain in his own right in his day. Um, then very quickly, the, like the, the, the bloodshed just, is particularly in the first six months, like it in total it claimed 18 lives. Two of them were attributable to the Hutch side. One was David Byrne, who's just gone. And another, another guy whose name escapes me now was shot dead in the intervening period. Uh, but the rest of them, were all wiped out by the Kinners. And and the people t- call it a feud. I, I think that that is inaccurate uh, because a feud pr- suggests uh, and assumes that there, it is in some way an equal match. It is not. They unleashed, they used their money and their cocaine uh, and their vast resources, the Kinnans, to literally terrorise the North Inner City because that's the home territory and neighbourhood of the Hutch family. In total, Jared Hutch has lost three of his nephews who he was very close to all of them. He's lost his brother, who's his best mate, and he lost his two genuine, lifelong best mates, Noel Duckhead Kerwin and uh, uh, Noel Duggan. Um, and they also included two completely innocent men. This was an attack on society in a way I've never seen before. The malevolence, they turned neighbours against neighbours. They exploited people who had drug problems and drug debts to set up their neighbours. Uh, like the attempt to kill Patsy Hutch was set up by a neighbour of his who has subsequently been convicted by uh, for a conspiracy to murder or been involved in a conspiracy to murder. It was not even in Limerick, in the worst days of Limerick, was it as bad as that. Paul, where were the guards in all of this and what role have they played? Well, the guards in this, this was one of the least... I suppose, auspicious moments in the history of Garda Shiokana that this thing was brewing and blow, brewing up. Uh, this, we Everybody knew something serious was going to happen because you can't go and try and murder Jared Hutch in fairness uh, and hope to get away with it. Everybody knew this boxing weigh-in. The Irish Independent did. The Sunday World did. We had photographers there. There wasn't one Garda unit there, which was unthinkable always, before and since. It illustrated the deficit that occurred or the deficiency that had been allowed to occur in policing in this country purely as a result of of economics and the cutbacks and austerity. Nobody bothered their backsides to collate intelligence on these guys. They were literally caught with their trousers down around their ankles. However, having said that, they did recoup their honour by really turning the tables like over 60 members of the Kinahan gang are now in prison in Ireland alone they're in prison in the UK they're in prison in Spain they have been smashed and brought to their knees and of course the so-called Hutch gang has now been brought to its knees because Jared is now awaiting extradition 
Paul, you've spoken to people close to the monk for your book. Has he ever addressed the Regency attack? Well, he has, um, in that his his line and his rationale um, for this whole thing is that he said, I was retired. I am not a godfather. Uh, I have left all of this life behind, but they attacked my family. And when they say his family, they also he also means they attacked him. They tried to kill him. And he was in a corner. Like he'll never say that, <clears throat> either in mitigation or in an admission to the special criminal court. But that is his rationale. So he was dragged back into this because of the volatility and the sins of the younger generation. And remember, himself and Daniel, uh, Christy Kinnan eyeballing each other to kill each other it was never on the agenda or in the script. They would have respected each other. And again, Daniel Kinnan is, you know, he's... Christy Kinnan suffering the sins as well of the younger generation is his his uh, son. So no, and also it would break his heart in a lot of ways. And I am no way an apologist for him. I just I understand this. As I say, I'm explaining this on the thirty years of knowing this guy and chronically in his life, he would be deeply, deeply uh, hurt and regretful. And I'd say there some of the rest of his family are as well of the absolute mayhem and turmoil that was inflicted on their people in their neighbourhood. Because if you want to understand Jared Hutch and the Hutch family generally, it's to understand the relationship with the neighbourhood. Jared Hutch was an inner city man to his toenails. Uh, he loves his own people. He never, ever would inflict crime on his own people. He That's why he put himself up as a sort of a, an equaliser or a person who sorted out problems in the local community. And what can we expect next after his arrest? It surprises me on so many levels why he was fought and caught in Fungarol in the middle of Costa del Sol, you know, the middle of Kinahan territory, gangland Irish territory. I just don't understand that. But he will fight tooth and nail according to his local, or his own pals and he will fight this extradition but I think the extradition European extradition warrant was based on legislation to unite and to dovetail legislation across all of Europe to basically lubricate the whole system of extradition between jurisdictions so therefore I I would say four months to six months max before he's brought back he will then be in the special criminal court he will be arraigned he'll be held in custody in prison but he is going to fight that case savagely uh, he'd fight it with every bit of power or every bit of strength that he has. Um, but And it's in the lap of the gods. But the Gardaí have a very, very strong case against them. They have recordings and surveillance recordings and a lot of other <clears throat> information that was not available uh, and wasn't relevant to the trial of his nephew, Patrick Hutch. His case was collapsed uh, in 2019. So ultimately, the rule of law is implacable. The rule of law is certainly implacable. And once the, you know, the, the, the wheels of justice grind unmercifully slowly, um, <clears throat> but once they start turning, they never stop. And I think the point here is that, and this is also the same for Daniel Kinnan. Daniel Kinnan, I predict now, Denise, will be back in Ireland in the Special Criminal Court, I'd say within the next two years. Mark my words, if I'm still alive, uh, you'll owe me a pint. We'll bet a pint on that one. But it proves ultimately, and this is for, for Jared Hutch and for Daniel Kinnan, no matter how clever you are, no matter how powerful you are, you can run, but you simply cannot hide. You are listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie, produced by Mary Carroll and sound designed by Dara Kelly. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.